Genesis chapter 12. On the screen you see a question, why is Israel important to Christians or why is it important to us as believers? And there are a lot of answers to that question and you may already be familiar with many or even most of them. But my question is, if somebody were to ask you in your neighborhood or at the grocery store or wherever you are, uh, why is Israel important? Because if you watch CNN, it's not, (laughs) right? If you listen to a lot of our news uh, reports today, um, Israel is a, uh, a group of people who are mistreating the Palestinians. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So what's the truth there? And can you discuss the truth? Uh, this, it's an important conversation, um, especially in light of the fact that some of our biblical heritage, our history, our background, if you will, has been lost. Uh, the world and an enemy who... Um, hates everything that God does, has plotted to hide the significance and the importance of Israel. And unfortunately, even the church today, parts of the church, have fallen for this delusion. Mainline denominations, in fact, more than not, uh, mainline denominations accept something called replacement theology. How many of you know what replacement theology is? Have you heard of that? I'll make it real simple. Here's the short version. The church, you and I today, According to replacement theology, we have replaced Israel. We've replaced Israel in God's plan. Or more simply, the Jews killed Jesus, they rejected Jesus, God rejected them, they're out and we're in. And what that means is that everywhere in your Bible where there's something about Israel, maybe a promise God made to Israel, you can throw that out because that doesn't mean anything. It no longer applies to them. Well, I have a problem with throwing promises out of God's word. Because he also promised me salvation through Jesus Christ. And if I have to throw one promise out, then I'd probably have to throw a lot of the promises out, wouldn't I? It would make God a liar, and God is not a liar. I have a friend named Ron Cantor who lives in Tel Aviv, Israel. He wrote a book called Replacement Theology. You may, or excuse me, <laughs> Identity Theft, about replacement theology. He wrote a book called Identity Theft. You may have heard about it. Uh, he talks about how the Jewishness of our Bible has been stolen, and he likens it to identity theft, which is big in America today. One in five say they have experienced identity theft. Anybody here been a victim? Uh, 74% say, I would do something about it if I really knew what to do. 33% say, there's nothing that I really can do. And 10% actually say, my credit's so bad, I hope somebody does steal my identity. All right? So, replacement theology is a lie robbing us of some of the biblical heritage. And we'll, we'll talk about that more as we go through uh, today. So, oh, I didn't even show you the screen for that. I'm not used to doing the PowerPoint, honestly. Um, I, I told my wife, you're going to have to raise your hand or I'm going to forget to click. So there's your identity being stolen right there on that screen. Uh, all right. Why is this really important? You know, Isaiah 46, I think it's verse 10, says that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. So there are a lot of things about the Bible, New Testament, for example, that in order to really deeply understand it, you kind of need to go back to the beginning. And the answer to the question, why is Israel important, we have to go back quite a ways. Let's go back to a man named Abram, where God's plan for the Jewish people began with a transformational choice of Abram. Out of a pagan world, God wanted to fashion a people who would be called Israel to save mankind with a Jewish Savior who we call Jesus. So he chose Abram from a population of more than 11 million people just after 250 years after the flood who worshiped a pantheon of gods. Um, 
very idolatrous culture. And still, in the midst of that, Abram heard God's call and he obeyed. Anybody know what the name Abram means? Not Abraham, but Abram. It means exalted father. And so I think God knew that Abram would be a man who would, who would teach uh, his children, instruct his kids in the way of the Lord. We need that today. Parents and grandparents instructing their kids and their grandkids in the way of the Lord. So look with me at verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now that must, for Abram, have been a powerful encounter with God because it's no small thing to leave your country, to leave your people, and to leave your father's household. Now, those three things are important. The pagan world related to their deities, their false gods, through those three connections. They worshiped their gods on a national level. They had national gods. So, therefore, God said, leave your country. And then in their families, they had what were called clan gods. So the Lord told Abram, leave your people. And even within each family, they had ancestral gods. So the Lord said, leave your father's household. So he severed all of Abraham's or Abram's ties to these other deities. And Abram was willing to fill that void with God. And he promised Abram that he would become a great nation. No deities were making that offer in that day. In fact, this is contrasted with the previous chapter. In chapter 11, you find the city and the tower builders who were building a what? A giant tower, Babel, uh, in the city of Babel, a tower that went to the heavens. Why? They wanted to make, it said, a name for themselves. Well, history and extra-biblical sources indicate that Abraham and Nimrod were contemporaries, and the word infers that Nimrod led in the building of Babel because he wanted to make his own name great. Abraham didn't, st- didn't seek to make his own name great. It says God would make his name great. How many of you know that if we're going to be exalted, exalted father, we need to be exalted by the father? Amen? Our greatness needs to come from God. And all peoples on the earth would be blessed through Abram. He would be their ancestor and a conduit of blessing from God. And so God entered into this covenant with him. No personal gods, no deities had done that before. Israel's understanding of destiny, of the nature of God, of their obligations to God all derived from this covenant, this agreement, this promise, if you will, that God made with Abram. The land connected them to survival, to livelihood, to political identity. Their family linked them to past, present, and future, and inheritance ensured past generations would be remembered. So Abraham actually forfeited those things by leaving his father's household, and he put his identity, his survival, his future, and his security in the hands of God. Look at verse 4. Chapter 12, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. If you read the rest of that, it says that he took Lot with him at the age of 75. He took Sarah, his wife. He took some others. He took all of his possessions, and he went to a distant place that God would show him. And over in the New Testament, the book of James tells us that, in fact, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called something that not a lot of people were called in the Bible. He was called the friend of God. So God chose Abram, who became Abraham, to be the father 
of Israel, through his descendants, the whole world would be impacted. And today you and I, as Jew and Gentile, are impacted. Now my question was, as I studied that long ago, I thought, why did he have to go to this place in this small, tiny spot in the Middle East? Why, why not? Why couldn't God make his agreement and work with him there where Abram was? Why not in his own land? But verse 1 says, go to the land that I will show you. Why Canaan? God moved Abraham to the crossroads of the ancient world. Listen, ancient travel routes, if you've done any history, and, and the way of the sea, which was a super highway that cut through Israel, connecting um, different parts of the world in those days by trade, uh, Israel is in the center of, of that place. God wanted a polytheistic world to know the one true God. God wanted the land of idolatry to know there's one God. How many of you have uh, been to Israel? Anybody? Okay, we've got a few. All right. Well, you know then that you can travel Israel north to south in about seven hours. You can travel it east to west in about two to three hours. So it's not big. I forget how many of them you can stick in Texas, like 30 or 20 or something. You, you can get a lot of them just in our state. But that tiny sliver of dirt is the land bridge between the ancient continents of the world. And there is in a place, the map that you see in front of you, in a place called Madaba, Jordan. I traveled there several years ago. And there is an old Greek, uh, ancient Greek basilica, uh, a place of worship that has a mosaic map on the floor. It's an ancient mosaic map. It's very large, actually. You can see it in the upper left-hand corner there, parts of it, dating back to the 6th century. And as with many ancient maps, right in the middle, the highlighted portion there for you, right in the middle is the city of Jerusalem. You see Damascus Gate, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Jaffa, Jaffa Gate, Bethlehem. So Jerusalem, Israel, is shown right as the center of the world. It was known as the center of the world. God chose that place on a, as a stage on which he would reveal himself and he would reveal his story. And we know, thankfully, that his story goes all the way through our Messiah, right? Jesus, who is our Savior, thankfully, by the grace of God, we're offered salvation. So that place, Jerusalem, Israel, the land of Israel, that place, the state of Israel, is important to God. So years ago, God deeded to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants, who would be the nation of Israel, this property deed. And the Lord said that it is for you, Abraham, it's for the, your seed after you, all the land of Canaan, it is an everlasting possession. You find that in chapter 17. And that property deed is described in different places in the Word of God. The boundaries are defined in Ezekiel and Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, called the land of Israel. Now, how many of you know that the dispute over that topic today is of epic proportion, right? I've just said something that as soon as you walk out those doors, most people are going to disagree because they're not founded upon the Word of God, right, and the truth of His Word. But God said to Israel, I give you this land as an everlasting possession. And, and today, again, there's a question, is the land Israel's? Does the land belong to Palestine? Is it the Palestinians or is it both? And I would argue with you that according to uh, 
the way that you're being taught today by CNN and, and the rest of the news, that there is no such thing as a Palestinian. Did you know that? Not according to the way you're being told. You need to do some research. There's no such thing as a Palestinian because years ago, along about 135 uh, CE, Emperor Hadrian wanted to erase all memory of Israel. And to do so, he used the name of Israel's ancient enemy, the Philistines. And from the Philistines, he fashioned in Latin the word Palestina, which today we say is Palestine. So what I'm saying to you is, even the Jews in that day were often called Palestinians. Even they were referred to because it's just a geographical location. The Palestinians are Arabs. I'm not saying that there's not peoples there. They're Arabs. And if the Arab peoples around them and the countries around them truly loved them, they would go and rescue them and help them and give them a place to to live and provide for them. Instead, I'm standing on the Gaza Strip not too long ago, except for a few years now, and some bombs had created some craters the night before right where I'm standing and watching the Israeli drones fly over the Gaza Strip. And to my left, I noticed a bunch of trucks going into the Gaza Strip. I said to the, the uh, IDF soldier, what is that? And he said, oh, well, that's our, shi- our, our uh, shipments of food and clothes and other provisions into the Palestinians. I said, you, Israel, you're shipping stuff into the Gaza Strip to take care of the people? And he said, absolutely, we do it all the time. He said, we're the one keeping the lights on for them, too, the electricity. We're providing for them. You don't hear about that in the news, though, do you? So the land of Israel is very important. In fact, it is the clock that speaks of future events, if you will. Israel is the hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount, that golden dome, is the second hand. So if you want to watch and know what's happening in the future, keep your eyes there. In fact, we live in Cleburne, and I attend a church where I teach a class of about 75 people, and and I'm going through the book of Revelation, and written written in Greek, but written by... John, who thought in Hebrew, okay? So as I go through the book of Revelation, I'm talking about the Hebrew roots of, Rev- of Revelation and God's plan unfolding um, for all mankind. And I'm going to tell you something. Israel pops up again and again and again and again. They have an important role there. And if you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, so to speak, keep your eyes on that golden dome. Israel plays a critical role in the last days. The Bible says that all Israel will be in the land, that there will rise one who's called the Antichrist, who will make a seven-year covenant of peace with Israel. It says that a temple will be rebuilt, and that the Antichrist will then reveal himself to be a liar. He'll break his covenant with Israel. Worldwide persecution of Israel will follow, and they'll be invaded. And finally, at that moment, the Bible says that all Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and they will be saved. Do you know that there's an organization today in Israel called the Temple Institute, and that they are preparing the implements for the temple that will be rebuilt? I visited there uh, last year, I think it was in February, and they were building the, at that time, they were working on the table of showbread that's in the temple, and they had one pan that they were working on. It was overladen with gold and had a value of $300,000. One pan, looked like a cookie sheet. So they're serious about what they're doing. Well, do you know what they've done recently? They have built what they believe is going to be the half shekel that will be used when the temple's rebuilt. 
The half shekel is important biblically because if you were a male and you're going to go up to make sacrifice, atonement for your sin, you had to pay the temple tax, which was a half shekel. So on one side of the half shekel, you can Google this. On one side of the half shekel, they have a picture of the temple. On the other side of the half shekel, there's two faces. One face is King Cyrus because he's the one who allowed the Israelites to come back and rebuild. And guess who the other face is? Anybody? President Donald Trump. I'm serious. President Donald Trump overlaid King Cyrus. Why? Because Donald Trump has done what? Something that no country has done, maybe ever, since the, especially since Israel's come back into the land. Recognize Jerusalem as the capital. You might say, now what does that got to do? Yeah. So what does that got to do with me? Well, it's in here. The book of Isaiah and other places says that God loves Jerusalem and that he will rebuild, in fact, redeem Jerusalem is what he said. You're living, folks, and I know they've said this before, but look around. See what's happening. We're living in biblical end times. I can't pick the date. Jesus didn't know. I don't know. But there is a time coming and coming soon when God's plan will be fulfilled. And Israel has an important role in that. In fact, the Bible says that the people and the land of Israel are the apple of his eye. Israel is the apple of his eye. The word apple in the Hebrew is ishon. It means little man. You might think, what? Little man? Well, when you gaze closely into somebody's eyes, you'll see what? A small reflection of yourself. You'll see a little person if you look closely. In other words, what you focus on is reflected in the apple of your eye. And Deuteronomy tells us, chapter 11, verse 12, it is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. God loves Israel. They are the apple of his eye. And guess what? He's not done there. If you've been to Israel, you've discovered it's not just a a desert, right? In fact, in the desert, in the desert, there are greenhouses miles and miles long. And if you get access to go into one of those greenhouses, you will discover vegetables that are two and three times the size of the vegetables grown here in the United States, out in the middle of the desert. Why? Because of Isaiah 41. See, Mark Twain went to, the, went to Israel in the 1800s, and he said, Israel is a blistering, naked, treeless land. But years and centuries before, here's what God said in Isaiah 41. I will make the rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I'll turn the desert into pools of water and parched ground into springs. That reminds me of something. I was going through the Negev with a guy not too many years ago. And, and he showed me a huge crater that was completely full of a beautiful crystal clear pool of water. And I said, wow, how did that get there? And he said, we don't know. That was his response. He said, this just popped up several years back. We're not even sure how it got here. We're in the process of studying it. The Lord said he'll make pools of water again flourish in the land. He talks about the fir tree, the cypress tree, acacia, the cedar, the myrtle, the olive tree. The Jews have reclaimed all the malaria-filled swamps in Israel. They've planted millions of trees. They've irrigated desert lands. They've planted fields because God said that would happen. Now, in Amos chapter 9, God says, not only am I going to rebuild the land, I'm going to bring my people back to the land. I'll bring them back from exile. It says they'll rebuild cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink the wine. They'll make gardens and eat the fruit. I'll plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them. Never again to be uprooted. 
for the first time in 2,000 years, there are more Jewish people living in Israel than outside of Israel. And they're coming from all over the world, making aliyah, which means descent. They're coming back to Israel uh, from Africa, from Asia, from South America, because God is still at work in the land. Why is Israel important? Because God started with a man named Abraham, fashioned a people, the Jewish people, in, in the land called Israel, which is important to you and I today. Now, here's another important reason why Israel should be a... Uh, something that we think about and study in Scripture. How about this? Jesus is a Jew. Do you know that? You'd be surprised how many people don't know that. Setting in the church, how many people don't realize that Jesus is a Jew? Why? Because we, we've pictured him as long, blonde hair and blue eyes as a European, right? Go to Israel. They don't look like that. They look like this. This was painted by an eight-year-old girl named uh, Akiana Kramaric. Yeah, said the Holy Spirit revealed to her that that's what Jesus looked like. She's probably closer to correct than most people. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. He respected the temple, called it his father's house. He taught in the synagogue. He observed Passover, Sukkot, Hanukkah. He went up to Jerusalem for those feasts. Whenever he was facing temptation, he taught from the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what he had because he was making the New Testament, right? Uh, Whenever he admonished, he quoted from the Hebrew Scriptures. From his birth to his last Passover Seder, Jesus lived as a Jew. And as far as I know, he's the only person ever in history to choose what family he'd be born to. Right? And he chose to be Jewish. Okay. Another reason why Israel is important. Jesus is a Jew. He, he loves his people, his culture. When we want to understand God's word, it helps if we understand about that culture. Now, let me explain something to you. You can go your entire life, and if you accept Christ as your Savior, you have salvation. The Bible says it is a gift of God, right? By grace, it is a gift of God. And you could study the Word, and the Holy Spirit could speak to you great truths because he, he, he is the Word, He is God, and He could speak truths of God's Word to you, and you could be just fine. And never study any Hebrew roots. But here's what I compare that to. It's like only and always listening to Bach on a harmonica. You're going to get the tune, but you're going to miss everything else. So if you never understand the Hebrew roots of the Bible, you'll get the tune and you're okay, but you're going to miss everything else. So I I want you to begin to think about the Bible as a Hebraic book, all right? A Hebraic book. The Bible, and somebody pointed something out to me, and I really appreciate this. The Bible is a Jewish book written in Hebrew. Um, I need to explain the New Testament is not in Hebrew, okay? The New Testament is in Greek, but... Jesus knew Hebrew, spoke Hebrew, read Hebrew. New Testament authors spoke Hebrew, read Hebrew, and thought in Hebrew. How many of you know another language? Anybody know two languages? Okay. Now, unless you're really, really, really good, when you are speaking that second language, you have to think in your original language. Yeah, you have to think in your original language in order to speak that second language. I don't know very many people that get to the point where they don't. All right. So when the writers of the New Testament are forming the the Greek, writing the Greek, some of them having uh, 
scribes write for them, they're thinking in Hebrew. So it's a Hebrew-influenced book. And through 2,000 years of diaspora, as the Jews were spread across the planet, the study and recitation of Hebrew united them. Hebrew is the only ancient language ever revived as a modern language. It's the official language of Israel. No other language has been revived in that manner. And listen to this. If you were to remove all of the books written by Jewish people in your Bible, um, do you know that you might only have three or four left? You might have Ruth, if she wrote it. You might have Job, it's before the Jewish people. And you might have Luke, if he's a Gentile. But if you remove all the books that were influenced by Jewish thought and Hebraic thought, then you'd have zero. So therefore, it might help us to understand a little bit about Hebraic background and culture and the culture of Jesus, don't you think? I think it helps us to explain things in the Bible that perhaps we don't sometimes understand. There is, in your Bible, an Old and a New Testament, and there's an interconnectedness between the two. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And I like to tell people that the Old Testament is the dictionary for the New Testament because it will explain phrases, repeated locations, names, imagery, things that you might not understand if you don't go back into the Old Testament and look at their meaning. When Jesus came on board, he didn't just start speaking a foreign language. He spoke out of the scriptures that they had. They understood the words because they knew the scripture that they had, right? So the New Testament is heavily, has a heavy Hebraic influence. One thing that I learned um, a few years back that has really enhanced my study of God's word is that the Bible is replete with, I'm forgetting this thing, Mindy, It's your fault. All right. (laughs) It's not her fault. It's my fault. Have you been signaling? Ah, it's my fault. All right. Uh, The the Bible's replete with patterns, locations, uh, repetition of names, things that you really need to go back and look and see uh, when, when they're repeated over, there's a reason. The reason is that we're thick-headed and God is trying to teach us, right? So he repeats himself. God repeats himself often. Give you an example. Now, picture in your mind that golden dome, which you can find on the news just about every day of the week somewhere, all right? The golden dome. Where's the golden dome? It's in Jerusalem, but more specifically, it's on a range of hills that we call Mount Moriah, all right? Golden dome, Mount Moriah, surrounded by a valley that we call Kidron. When I say we, the Bible calls it that, the Kidron Bible. Now, go back, if, you're, if you would, in your mind to Genesis chapter 2, and you'll find there the description of a place called the Land of Eden, different from the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is located within the broader Land of Eden. It says that out of the land of Eden flow four streams, the Tigris, Euphrates, the Pishon, and the Gihon. Now, the Tigris and Euphrates are further up into the Middle East, so the land of Eden was vast. But when it starts speaking about the Garden of Eden, it talks about how the the Gihon Spring, we can see, uh, flows out of it. If you've been to Israel, have you seen the Gihon Spring? There's only one place where it flows out of the ground on the planet, and it's under the Golden Dome. And you can go see it. So what did I just tell you? If you missed it, I told you this. The beginnings of creation and the birth of mankind took place at the Golden Dome, at that area. Now, why do you think the enemy's fighting 
so hard to see it destroyed. The temple never rebuilt. To see the Israelites destroyed, rather, and the Golden Dome being there. Why do you think the enemy is fighting so hard to keep the temple from being destroyed? Is what I meant to say. So, follow me forward now out of Genesis chapter 2. And think about Abraham. He went to offer his son Isaac, and God provided a sacrifice, uh, a ram in the, in, the bush, in the bush so that he didn't have to. Where was Abraham when he was going to do that? Mount Moriah, where the Golden Dome is. Go forward now to the time of David who bought a field named, from a man named Arnal the Jebusite. He was going to build an altar to worship the Lord. Where is that little field? Mount Moriah, where the Golden Dome is. Now, David's son Solomon was commissioned by the Lord to build a temple. Where's the temple? It was built where the Golden Dome is, on Mount Moriah. Jesus came, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and was crucified on a cross, rose again three days later. Where did the crucifixion take place? Right there in and around that area called Mount Moriah, where that Golden Dome is, nearby. And in years to come, The Bible tells us that God will judge the sin of all mankind in a valley called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You know where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is? It's in the Kidron Valley, the Golden Dome. Hebrew is cyclical, and seeing patterns in the Word of God reveals depth. For example, I love to tell people that one of the greatest tools of evangelism actually is talking to people about heaven. Now, let me explain. Talking to people about the biblical heaven. You see, most of us have kind of been taught that heaven is a place where, yes, there's streets of gold and large gates of pearl, but beyond that, we all become angels and we're fat little cherubs sitting on clouds and strumming harps. Listen, that's what the average person thinks about heaven. In fact, most believers cannot tell you specifics about heaven, even though I believe through patterns in Scripture, it's revealed. I don't think it's hidden. I think there's a lot we know about Scripture. In fact, the land of Eden and the the Garden of Eden, there's three sections if you study it carefully, which it's a pattern for what the tabernacle would look like, the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place, pattern for the temple. And that temple that Moses built, he said, God told Moses, you build that because it's a replica of what? It's a replica of the real thing. It's a copy. Read Hebrews. It's a copy of what is in heaven. And every time somebody sees into heaven, Isaiah said, chapter 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his veil filled the temple. So today, where's God? He's seated on a throne in a temple in a place called heaven which I think the Bible talks about as being all around us. If we could take all the sin out of us right now, I think we could see the heaven and earth. I really do. I don't think it's up there. I don't think we can build a rocket. Finally, we're going to get up there to where God is um, in heaven. All right? So what I'm saying to you is, as you study the Scripture and you look at the Hebrew roots and you see the patterns, there's so much more revelation there in God's Word for us to understand. In fact, the Bible, Jesus promised that none of the Bible would pass away. In Matthew 5.18, he said that all of the word of God would be fulfilled and that not one jot or tittle would be lost. Now that clears it up, doesn't it? Not one jot or tittle is going to be lost. 
So what's a jot and a tittle? Well, in Cleburne, I worked for a few years with an organization called the Christian Heritage Foundation, and they have an ancient collection of Hebrew scrolls. And so I got to to study a lot of those scrolls for years. And when you learn about how a scroll is written, you, you, you'll learn about um, uh, the language, the, the, the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, I've noticed on your, I love your alpha and omega on here. And in Hebrew, it would be Aleph Tav, um, which is Jesus is Aleph Tav. He's Alpha and Omega. He's beginning and end. He's Aleph Tav. So when the Lord said not one jot will pass away, that is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A jot is a yod. A yod. It's one of the letters. And in fact, it is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's about the size of a small apostrophe. A small apostrophe. Now, what's a tittle? Okay, a sofer, a writer, a guy who writes the scrolls, he has to know 8,000 laws. This is still today, same way. have to know 8,000 laws before they can start writing a Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and it might take them a year to write that. Okay? If he messes up, one bit, one mark, anything wrong, that page has to be destroyed that took him one month in order to develop it. So it's incredible what the skills that they have to do. Still writing with feathers. I have feathers from uh, people at Machanot in Jerusalem who are writing scrolls. Okay, so what's the tittle? When a sofer wants to place his mark on that scroll and kind of brag a little bit about his skills, on top of the, he- the Hebraic letters, on top of the Hebrew, he will make little tiny decorative crownlets, little decorative marks. Some of them you can only see almost with a magnifying glass. So here's what Jesus said. Not one word in God's word is going to be unfulfilled. Not even the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet and not even the little decorative marks on top of the smallest letter are going to pass away. In other words, nothing. (laughs) God's word will be fulfilled. Amen? It will be fulfilled because it is a Jewish book. It is a Hebraic book written by uh, people who, uh, who loved or under, understood the Jewish culture. So, why is Israel important to us? Well, God's blessing to us comes through Abraham. We just read it. He said, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. That's God's word. Now, I know what some of you are going to say because this is, this is what, you, what others have said to you, well, that's the Old Testament, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't count anymore. Well, again, Jesus didn't do away with it. He came and fulfilled it. And I need to also remind you that if you can't count on God's Old Testament promises, then why can you count on God's New Testament promises, okay? So you've got to be able, he's, he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever, okay? So God chose Abraham, who's blessed us through his lineage, God chose a, a, a place. Locations are important. I just showed you that with Mount Moriah. That's why there's so much controversy over that golden dome. That's God's spot. That's where God made man. That's where God sent his son. That's where God's returning. When Jesus puts down, it's not going to be in Granbury. His feet are going to touch. Yep, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, right? In the millennium, we're all going to go up there and, and well, we might not. We may be gone. I don't know. Depends on what you believe there. <laughs> where the rapture is and all that. I'm not going to go there. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we're going to go up and worship him. So that's an important place. Jesus, who is a, a Jewish man, God is not finished with Israel. And the Bible 
is a Hebraic book. And I want to close by telling you this one last uh, nugget, sharing with you one last nugget out of Scripture. Um, I've said the Bible comes to life in a Hebraic context. Well, the begats actually come to life in a Hebraic context. You know what I'm talking about when I say the begats? Think about Genesis chapter 5 where it talks about Adam begat Seth, who begat Enoch, who begat Kenan, etc., etc. Now, let's just be honest. I said this in the first service. What do we normally do when we get to the begats? You flip the page. You go to the next chapter. You skip it because it says Adam begat Seth, who begat Enish. There's some other words in there, but that's basically what it says. Well, we skip it because we're English thinkers. And we're thinking English. And it was written in Hebrew. For example, the name Jesus. Now, we know who Jesus is. The Savior of mankind, the Son of God, Messiah. But the name Jesus in English, not in, not in Hebrew, in English, what does the name Jesus mean? Anybody? In English. Yeah, you're right. doesn't mean anything. doesn't have any meaning. But in Hebrew... Names in Hebrew, Yeshua means salvation. It means salvation. Okay, well, guess what? Adam, Seth, and Enosh, those mean something too. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means blessed God. Jared means come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death will bring. Lamech means despairing. And Noah means comfort. Now, if you read all that in order transliterated into the English. And, and, and if you study this, I challenge you, go look at this up. Go get a Strong's Concordance. And you might find synonyms for the words I've given you, but they'll be the same meaning. And here's what it says. Those names in the order that God placed them. Man appointed mortal sorrow. Blessed God will come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort. Okay. That's in the begats. Now, there's no trickery there. That's just the meaning of the names. See, because I want to encourage you about something here as I, as, I, as I wrap up. One last thought. That's pastors are liars. I'm sorry. I, I said that while ago, didn't I? Okay, I really am wrapping up right here, okay? <laughs> this is my second closing. Okay, I guess that's all right. My gosh, got to watch what I say. Um, we need balance in the Word of God. I'm, I'm forever saying this. I teach this. I, 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 I try to live this. Because God can put these wonderful truths in us, and we can take them and just run crazy and twist them up and, and go off one end and the other end. You know, uh, I was talking with Pastor earlier about uh, some peoples, uh, not just here, all over the planet, particularly in America, Gentiles who are um, getting into Hebrew roots, which I encourage, but maybe going over the edge a little too far. In fact, I have Jewish friends who come visit me from Israel, and they walk into some of our Messianic congregations and say, what are you doing? They're not Jewish. They're Gentile. They say, what are you doing? Um, you're off base, and they should know. We don't have to. I don't have to follow the feasts. I don't have to wear a, 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 a talit. I don't have to blow a shofar. There's nothing wrong with that. I've done that. I've, I've blown shofars. It has powerful symbolism in the Word of God. In fact, my Jewish-believing friends would say they don't have to anymore because they know Christ. They want to because that's their culture. 
So there is a difference. I want to emphasize there is a difference between Jew and Gentile. God meant for it to be that way. Yes, it says the two will become one, but that's unity, not uniformity. Okay? So, so I need you to think about this for a minute. There is in the Bible, there were guidelines that were for certain people and not for other people. For example, the high priest had rules that were not for the Levitical priesthood. And the priesthood had rules that weren't for the layman. And women had rules that weren't for men and vice versa. And in New Testament, Acts 15, when there was a, a controversy over whether the Gentiles had to become Jews in order to be believers, they met, the council met there in Jerusalem and said, no, they don't have to become Jews. Here's some guidelines we'd like for them to follow, but they don't have to become, they don't have to convert, if you would, to Judaism. All right? So we are Jew and Gentile. God means for it to be that way. He's forming us, fashioning us into one new man, unity, not uniformity. And that's his plan. And therefore, his plan can't be fulfilled if you take Israel out of the equation. There is no one new man. Israel has an important role. We need to be teaching and sharing with those around about us the truth so that they don't get the truth from Hollywood and from a lot of the places that are lying to us, that we get the truth from God's Word. So I want to thank you for letting me come and share with you today. Um, I just love uh, opportunity. Oh, I didn't hit the last one. There you go, Mindy. There's the last one right there. Summary of everything I told you. I could have just put that up at the beginning, and we all went home early, right? Okay. So is it okay if I lead in a word of prayer? And pastor can come and lead in another one if he wants to. You can't have too much prayer. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Father, I thank you that you revealed it to a simpleton like me, that if I simply understand God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, then I can be saved and relate to you, relate to a holy father through the sacrifice of a righteous son. We thank you, Lord, for that. But Father, I thank you also that you, it is your heart to disciple us and to train us and sanctify us and prepare us for what is to come. And so, Lord, you have planted within your word a Hebrew background, Father, that, that we don't understand, but we can understand it. And when we do, Father, we see how much deeper, how much rich, richer your word is. And so, Lord, help us to remember that because a few Jewish people rejected Jesus, not all, the Gentiles got the word of God, and we're not to boast. They are the root, and we are grafted in. We thank you for that. Jew and Gentile, in Jesus' name, amen.
says every knee will bow and every language will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Hebrew, they'll say Yeshua HaMashiach is Adonai. Spaniards, Mexicans, Spanish speakers will say Jesus Cristo, Estel Señor, right? The Greeks will say Jesus Christos is Kyrios. Amen. Makes me curious. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. So don't wait till that day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord God Almighty Yahweh himself lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. And as the cowboy said, may the good Lord take a liking to you. God bless you. Go get him, tiger.